I assume everyone's coming of age is traumatic, but the 60s and 70s were unique in the fact that we had a draft where people were protesting the war vehemently. Uh, we had women's rights starting, civil rights movement occurring. And I lived in Flushing, Queens uh, when I went to Hofstra University. And after I went to graduate school, I read a, an article in the Washington Post that a physician uh, had been turned in by a plumber who discovered human remains in the sewage pipes. And this home was only about four or five uh, houses from where I roomed, and I thought that would be a great topic for a novel. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous stuff we decide to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Frank Hopkins, an indie author from the Eastern Shore of Maryland. He picked up his pen in graduate school at the University of Maryland, where he earned his Ph.D. in economics in 1971. He continued along the path of academics when he took a position with then State University of New York in Binghamton, now Binghamton University, where he wrote technical economic research papers and a monograph on the U.S. industrial system. He began writing fiction after retiring and moving to coastal Delaware. He published Unplanned Choices, the first novel, in 2013, and then followed it up with his second novel in 2014 titled The Opportunity. His most recent work is a collection of short stories titled The First Time. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Thank you for having me. Yeah, glad to, glad to have you in. And I think one of the first things I kind of noticed, especially when I was writing your bio, was that, and, I, and you and I have talked about, well, I knew this from prior, from having you know known you before, that so you you were an economics guy, you were a numbers guy. That is a pretty technical thing, and then all of a sudden, sort of you know into retirement, you switched into fiction writing. So I just was kind of struck by that. That's a pretty that's kind of it feels pretty drastic to me to go from economic research writing about you know the U.S. industrial system to hey let, let's write about you know these all these other sort of things. Well, I was always interested in fiction. And graduate school, all your studies in economics are very technical, mathematical. And when I had a break, I would read Grisham or uh, other writers of his uh, genre. And all throughout my professional career, I wanted to get into fiction. But being married, having kids, getting divorced, having a career, you just don't have the time. And retirement is a very good uh, period of your life to concentrate on writing. Absolutely. And so you said, uh, John Grisham. I didn't. I didn't have the opportunity. Is that is that the is that the style of your first two novels, or what? What, what would you say the styles of your first two novels were? Uh, I've been told that I sort of write in a voice of realistic fiction, uh, with a a large amount of uh, describing the set where the uh, fiction occurs. Mm-hmm. Right. So like one of the things I wanted to kind of hit right away, um, you know, was in the novel Unplanned Choices and kind of start where you started with fiction. So in Unplanned Choices, there's a lot of what I would consider, I guess, from my generation perspective, a lot of baby boomer type issues. I mean, it kind of takes place around that. So the uh, the Vietnam War time frame. And then there's, you know, issues of like civil rights and abortion. And there's this young couple that's kind of moving through that. Is that sort of, you know, is that sort of like the primary thing that you were kind of going for at that time with the first novel? Or uh, Yes, it was. Uh, I assume everyone's coming of age is traumatic. But the 60s and 70s 
were unique in the fact that we had a draft where people were protesting the war vehemently. Uh, we had well, women's rights starting, civil rights movement occurring. And I lived in Flushing, Queens uh, when I went to Hofstra University. And after I went to graduate school, I read a, an article in the Washington Post that a physician uh, had been turned in by a plumber who discovered human remains in the sewage pipes. And this home was only about four or five uh, houses from where I oh, roomed. Wow. And I thought that would be a great topic for a novel because this time period was when abortion was still not legalized in New York and all the young men and women that had fallen in love and didn't uh, listen to the Catholic Church's prohibition against sexual relations were getting themselves in trouble and sometimes dying. And I thought that would be a very interesting thing to write about. Now, of course, over the last 30 or 40 years, uh, this has become very topical again. Uh, so while it's a book set 50 years ago, I think it uh, says something to do with current affairs. Absolutely. There's, um, you know, when you talk about, I think this happens sometimes for a lot of writers. You know, we, we pick up the newspaper, we hear a story, or there's, you know, some, you know, a family story, we've heard a thing over time, and then that kind of plants itself in the writer's brain. You're like, hey, this is this would make for a great story or a good place to springboard. Is that something that you found um, when you heard that story? Did that really play into the development of the novel, or was that just like a springboard idea, and then you kind of launched and went in a totally different direction? Uh, no, it played into the novel. Right. Yeah, there's um, I I think that happens to a lot of people. You know, we kind of hear these little snippets of things, and it kind of just pulls right back in, into our writing. It just ends up being grist for the mill, I think. And the more uh, that it became topical in the news and and in politics, the stronger urge I had to finish the novel to start it and finish it. That was that was that was actually my question. So, uh, it was I guess thirty five years between the newspaper story and the novel. Uh, well, I jotted down some notes over the time, but I, I think I really started at about 2004, 2005, mm. when I was consulting and sort of half-retired at that time. Gotcha. One of the things that we like to talk about, or I like to talk about, is that sometimes, often for me, writing is a little bit like throwing up, where it's like, you've got this idea, and it's like, eh, it's not ready yet, and it's and you're like, ah, pretty soon, pretty soon, and then you're like, okay, here it comes, and then you got to write it down. Is that... The, that 30, 30 years is a long time, so I was wondering how, how that germinated with you. Uh, mine was a little more structured. Uh, after I was teaching, I moved into uh, federal government contracting and then became a contractor where we had deadlines that we had to meet, especially in my work, which was managing business development and mm. writing large proposals. If you're late on a proposal, that's it. It doesn't count. So after about 10 or 15 years of that training, right. I had discipline myself to sit down and I usually write at six in the morning till about eight or nine and then I take the rest of my day and how did you what 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 kind of effort if any did you make to disguise the the effect that this particular news story had or is this one of those is it more like historical fiction where it's built around a, a well-known case it's historical fiction Built around a case that actually occurred. So you, gotcha. you just said, this is what happened, and this is what Well, I changed the names. Right. And, and of course, it's 98% fiction, since I wasn't around to listen to the conversation. So right. all the dialogue is what I think they should have said. <laughs> and, and so then your background, so you were in academics as a, 
as a professor. Right. And then uh, you transitioned into federal government work, Correct. also pretty technical and that sort of thing. So uh, with your second novel, which was called The Opportunity. So I'm going to make a, a jump here and say that <clears throat> you pulled a lot of that federal background understanding of that into The Opportunity um, the, the novel, The Opportunity. Uh, that's correct. The Opportunity, for those who haven't read it yet, is a novel about corruption in the federal government contracting industry, uh, and which I was involved with for quite a long time. And while everyone likes to be honest, there are shortcuts that you can take uh, to win contracts, and there are also illegal ways of winning contracts. And The Opportunity discusses uh, what went on. Uh, it's set in the Washington, D.C. area in Rehoboth Beach, uh, Congress gets involved in accepting some of the corruption. Uh, so I think it's a very interesting read because of my background in the government and in contracting. And, and how much of that is stuff that you thought might have been going on, and how much of that do you feel like was going on, but you had a... a the main corruption case is taken from a real-life example, uh, but everything has been changed to protect the innocent and also myself from being sued. <laughs> <laughs> the innocent and those of us in the gray area. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Tony. So you, you, have this, you have this case that's coming up and you, and you feel like you want to deal with it. Did you wait? Uh, were you all the way out before you started to kind of treat this? Or uh, Yes, I was. I was uh, finishing up on uh, unplanned choices and I was looking for a uh, similar type of... Uh, crime novel where illegal activities occurred, uh, which everyone understands why they occurred. Right. And so then I took some real-life examples, made an outline, then a detailed outline, then I put everything in a large spreadsheet with characters and scenes and started writing. Again, a very uh, disciplined, uh, technical approach to, to right. fiction writing. Actually, I learned that approach from uh, attending a writer's conference in Washington, D.C., and a romance writer is the one who delivered really? the uh, paper on how to use that uh, procedure. Using and a romance writer using Excel spreadsheets. Right. Well, romance writers, you know, they can put out a, a book a month. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, there's... Well, and they have they to have a system. The, they just hit the name button on the Excel spreadsheet and then yeah. put it back out again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, I couldn't even imagine trying to be that. There's a close. lot of find and replace in romance novel writing. Oh ah, gosh, yeah, it seems it seems a lot. <laughs> find Rosalie replaced with Mary Print. <laughs> but for the way I write, it's very useful because one of the most important things is the timeline. Absolutely. And I have a row in each one of the spreadsheets for each one of the scenes exactly when it occurred. Uh, so as you revise it, you might have to change the dates because they conflict, and it's very easy to do that and keep track of it. All right. Well, I've read your writing, and one of the things that I notice about the way that, that you write and some of the things when we're in a critique group together, and one of the things I notice about you is that there's, it is very detail-oriented. There's, I mean, you very much tell your reader, this is exactly where you are, this is exactly what you're seeing, this is exactly who the character is, you know, what they're wearing, time, place. I mean, you really root people into a very concrete universe, and it feels like, I mean, do you, do you think that that comes from having that technical things, all I's must be dotted, T's must be crossed, that you feel that, you know, the reason, you know, you feel this motivation to paint that sort of very detailed portrait for the reader? Uh, no, it didn't come out of my past. It came from realizing that when I started writing, I really didn't know how to do it. So oh. I went and took a number of courses from uh, the Rehoboth Beach Writers Guild. And the head of that guild, uh, Mary Beth... Uh, taught us the importance of setting. 
Okay. Yeah, I would I would so agree that, you know... If you each time we turned something in, she would say, improve it here, improve it there. And I took a computer uh, course and, uh, with her, and the story that I read from was developed in that computer course. Okay. Where there's a lot of setting involved. Yeah, there's um, there was a lot of detail. I mean, we were listening to uh, Frank Reed right before this podcast, and there is a lot of detail that, you know, you kind of really ground people in. There's no really no uh, question about where we are, what we're doing, what we're right. seeing, you know? One of the things uh, you said, a computer course? Yeah, it was an interactive web course where I would write something, she would uh, read it. Oh, okay, okay. Give so, me questions and I'd return. Oh, so a critique, yeah, critique yeah, here. It was like, a, when you say computer course, I was confused. Oh, no, like, like the a, great courses yeah. now. No, it was, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I was, I was wondering, too. I didn't know really. But so it was more like a critique via... Right, gotcha. yes, back and forth. Gotcha. And how, how did you get involved with the... Uh, with the Rehoboth Writers Guild? I just looked in the web for uh, courses and for organizations to join. Because uh, it's not just the courses you want to take, but the networking you get from meeting other writers. Right. And getting contacts and learning how to do things. Right. I think that's a good segue into the third novel because, um, you know, as you, as I mentioned, um, reading your bio, so you moved to coastal Delaware. And I noticed that some of the stories, you know, um, you sort of pull from that beach environment, you know, to, to kind of play into some of the settings and to where some of the people are meeting and how that is kind of, some of that stuff is kind of coalescing at the beach. So um, I thought it might be a great opportunity to kind of segue into first time. Well, I grew up uh, and spent most of my formative years in Nassau County okay. near Jones Beach and Long Beach. Uh, and the topography of that area is very similar to that in Delaware where you have barrier islands and inland bays, which you can uh, enjoy. And unlike New York City, there's not as many people, and there are much lower taxes. So Delaware is a great place to retire to. Uh, I wrote a number of the stories in first time in classes in, with ver- and critique groups with various uh, writing organizations. And after I had about eight or nine of them, I realized, hey, I could put these together, as other people have done, yeah. to get a collection of short stories, which is exactly what I did. And it took a little longer than I thought. Sure. Now, so these are over over a course of years you wrote it, but it's interesting. What interests you about that theme that you had? Like, since since it seems to me like the the collection came after the stories, but the stories all kind of have the same have the the stories are all on a theme. So, what what attracted you to that kind of that the nature of that first time experience? I think that was subconscious. I just wrote these stories, and then when I put them all together, I said, well. What is the similarity or differences? And then I said, oh, it's first car, you know, first trip to Sorianto. Uh, the last story is the first trip uh, into the mountains uh, which after his wife dies and he's reminiscing. So it seemed like a good title. So I used it. Yeah, no, I was thinking that, um, you know, if you're going to build a collection of short stories. I mean, most people, you know, think about it. Sometimes you pick up a collection of short stories and it's just kind of all over the place. But I think having a theme that kind of links you through, I think will kind of help walk that reader from one story to the next and then kind of create maybe a, a moment of reflection for the reader at the end of that. Piece. Actually, I have about 20 short stories I've written, but when I read them all and tried to pull them together, that's when I realize the connection between the ones I've included. Exactly. So something kind of they, certain ones kind of rose to the occasion for, exactly. for this collection. I think that makes sense. Now, do you find yourself uh, more attracted to short stories now, or are you 
Do you still have a couple novels in your head? What do you? I'm uh, about ninety percent done my first draft on my third novel, and so I'm holding off on short stories. Well, I want to publish another collection, and the name of that novel is Abandoned Homes, and it's set in Sussex County. And anyone who's driven around Sussex County can see dozens of abandoned homes at various states of repair. Uh, and the, the hero of the story is an ex-academician, uh, surprisingly, and he has, doesn't know what to do with himself, so he decides to do a study on the causes of these abandoned homes on the farm industry. Uh, so he goes into one, falls through the floor, and discovers a skeleton, which starts off uh, the crime story of uh, serial killings. Yeah, and then we actually, I've read the first chapter in uh, our critique group, and uh, that was, you know, when I was reading this story, I was like, here's this guy, he used to be an academic, and he was an economics guy, and now he's moved to coastal Delaware, and I'm thinking, Frank, is this you? Is this, <laughs> like, I'm thinking, I'm, th- I'm feeling like I've met this character already, you know? Right. <laughs> well, so, did you really find a skeleton? Uh, no, but I'm sure I could. There's so many homes in there. <laughs> yeah, well, and that was one of the things we talked about in the in the critique class or the critique group that we have, and that was kind of one of the things that everyone in the critique group said about this about abandoned homes was that how many times have we all done that? You know, how many times have we been driving down the road? You see this old abandoned farmhouse, and you wonder who lived there. What was the story behind it? How did these was it a farmhouse? Was it, you know, did it, did it get passed down? How does, how does a house just die with no one to, around to care about it? No. And so I think that was one of the things that we all sort of felt as a theme was like, yes, we could all very clearly identify with seeing a home, wondering the story. And then, I mean, I've even, you know, on a few occasions, you know, kind of crept in through a few and looked at a few, you know, see what's, what remains basically. So I've, I feel like that was kind of a, a normal it was kind of a good hook right away for, for some of us. Yeah, there, there is a real attraction to that. Actually, my wife and I, will we call we, we go on trespassing adventures. Where, trespassing adventures with yeah, Kelly. Yeah, we go and we find That places. should be a podcast. <laughs> trespassing, trespassing adventures with Kelly. Trespassing with Kelly. And, uh, and that, because there is, there is something about, like, could all this stuff have really still looked like this when people just gave up and left? Or was, right. or is it, you know, because we all have, we, I mean, I have like a drawer that I'm like, I really have to take care of that someday. And if I die, it's not getting taken care of. But like how many generations before it's just like the house crumbles into itself and just, no one's touched this, you know, no right. one's gotten that watch fixed yet. Yeah, no, th- there was a moment in um, the story Abandoned Houses, which is, you know, the next one that um, Frank has coming out where... <clears throat> the main character who may or may not be actually Frank is walking through the is walking through the house and he sees this old uh washing machine you know with like the round tub or whatever and the second i read that i remembered a, a time when i was actually out doing a trespassing with kelly uh episode <laughs> and i was in franklin city virginia cuz i wrote a story about franklin city and there were some houses and i just kind of like wandered down a lane and wandered into this house with these weeds growing up and when i went into the kitchen or what i assumed might have been a kitchen based on cabinets and stuff there was one of those old washing machines that was like the round you know the round white piece you know and so when i read frank's story it was one of those moments where i think as a reader 
you see something in a novel and you're like, yes, I've been there. I've done that. I have this inclination to do that. I want to clear up one point, although you two enjoy trespassing. Uh, The main character, Paul O'Hare, had received permission from the owners. Because, (laughs) and in the first chapter, or the second chapter, I guess, uh, he calls the police after seeing the skeleton and a detective, Margaret Hoffman, shows up and is chastising him for trespassing, which I guess is a common behavior in Sussex County. Yeah, welcome and to Sussex he, County. And he shows her the permission letters. Right. And, of course, uh, they're both recently widowed, and they see the glint in each other's eye. And so it's not just a crime novel, but there's a little romance involved. Yeah, yeah there, there, there is, there's a little bit of foreshadowing of, uh, hey, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that, uh, that, that, that trespassing is... Is uncommon. I think that a lot of these houses are in such bad repair, though, that looting is kind of uncommon. So it's like, yeah, well, you know, as long as you don't burn the place down or take up residence there, I think a lot of times they don't they don't care very very much. Yeah, I don't know, but I but I I do think that kind of was what Frank was kind of hitting on a little while ago was that you know there is this sense of like what lies beneath with some of these homes, and I think so you took that in almost a quite literal way and when Paul uh, falls through the floor um, when he falls through what lies beneath for this place is an actual skeleton so I don't know I'm, I'm, it, it was a pretty interesting read and I can see how he's you know you know cleaning that up and working for it. so that would be actually be a, a pretty good one it's uh, so do you have a, a potential date when that may be coming forward um, I would plan to finish it in the spring but then I decided to get the short story collection out which Always takes longer than you anticipate. Sure. Because sometimes the editing is not perfect. And when you get a few of the beta uh, versions of the book out, your friends come back and tell you that you don't know how to read or write certain yeah. words. Yeah, if you That's, have good friends, they tell you that. <laughs> yeah. <but you're laughs> so I, I hopefully will finish the first draft uh, in June. And then it'll be probably a number of months before I, I get that done. Now, I'm going to agree sailing in September, so I probably won't work too much on the book then. Yeah, well, hopefully, be. getting ideas on my next novel. Well, and uh, actually, as, so as we're as we're pulling into the station here, the last part of the show, we like to talk about the different ways that we market our books, or that one markets one's books. Okay. Um, and before I ask you, I'm going to tell you something that I'm considering doing for mine. That's along those lines because. It's always horrifying to read the book and to see and to see the mistakes. So I was thinking of reading like one sentence a day, and like doing like the world's longest uh, longest audiobook, longest produced audiobook, where every day I read one or two sentences, like on the on the Facebook Live, and say you know stay tuned for tomorrow. <laughs> uh, but that's 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 not. I just want to see how horrible it is, and I don't think I could take it a chapter at a time. So I feel like. Two or three lines at a time is all I can handle. Well, it is pretty painful when you pick up something that is, like, you know, it's published, it's out there, other people have got it, and then you randomly, you know, pick up your work. This happened to me not too long ago, uh, but I picked up something that I had, you know, I picked up Crossings, and then I was giving a reading, and to like 30 people book had been out like a couple of years and I was just was giving this reading and I found a mis- like a typo in pain and I part of my brain was completely was freaking out and the other part of my brain was like keep cool you know but uh it it is it, it, it can be painful to to get those things but I was at a uh, a meeting of the Delaware Press Association right uh, last week and the lead speaker was a, an editor for a newspaper and he described how papers have moved from uh, print 
to the web, and one of the main things that they've done is dropped copy editing. Oh, they man. have the theory that the writer can do the copy editing. Anyone who's ever written anything realizes that's no. impossible. No, because you can't. And so you'll see more it. errors in, in books and newspapers right. in the last five years than you've ever saw. So when you went to do these books, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know that um, first time that this last collection of short stories came from uh, CreateSpace. You did that via the Amazon CreateSpace Correct, module? Correct, I did, yes. Okay. So, um, and the other two, were they done in similar? Or? Well, same thing. Same thing. Gotcha. I'm pretty okay. good with a computer, so I was able to do it with that. Gotcha. So do you find, um, what are the challenges that, or, or what are the, how, how does that kind of work for you on the back end with, uh, you know, getting in bookstores and talking about it and like Tony said, you know, getting yeah. the word out there that this thing exists and then getting it into the hands of your reader. Well, of course, when I first uh, completed Unplanned Choices, I put it out there, I assumed all the bookstores would take it sure. just after it was read once and right. that's not the way it works. No, not at all. Uh, the large book chains do not really take uh, self-published authors no. unless you sell 30,000 copies and then they call you up. Sure. Uh, so walking into them is sort of a waste of time. So you have to develop your own marketing material, which you actually do when you're uh, uh, going through a large publisher. So I put together pamphlets. I have uh, business cards. I have bookmarks. Uh, I believe uh, getting them in bookstores and getting book signings in bookstores is the easiest way to sell your books for a new author. Right. I've also gone to, there are a lot of book festivals around the Washington, D.C. Yeah, I was just Delmar about to say, area. I know that you do that. And uh, some of them are good, some of them are bad. You just have to find out which ones are, are good for you. Some right. are oriented to children, and, you know, children are not going to buy my books. No, so. no. <laughs> now, I've, I've actually, I've never, I've never been to one. So you, do you go um, and set up a table and a display, or do you go with other authors? Is it like a cooperative thing? Uh, it depends. Some of them are very large and established. There's the Baltimore has one in September, and they'll get fifty to one hundred thousand people, and they will sell you tents and tables for a nominal fee. Right, but I'm, I'm, I, I, I asked a question wrong. That was my fault. So, do I come in and say, "Hi, I'm Judy from Barnes and Noble. I'd like a hundred, or do I come in and say, "Oh, that looks like a fun book. I'd like one, or is it a mixture of both? It's mainly no Barnes and Noble. It's individual customers. And it's very important when you see a customer and they make eye contact with you. That's when you start talking. Right, and that's 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 got to be tough though. Reaching out to you know just 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 that hi, how you doing? It's always it's always been a tough thing for me to to, to just kind of sit there and try to too. grab people as they walk by. Tony, I find that hard to believe, but I used to be in marketing, <laughs> so it, it uh, it's not that hard. Right, I think, and I think Tony, I think you and I maybe have talked about this before. Like I. Like I find it so much easier to sell other people's work. I, I could sell <clears throat> Tony's book. I could promote any number of the saltwater media authors or people that are connected with it or Frank's work. And then someone says like, oh, well, you've written a book. I'm like, well, yeah, just like this one thing. But let me tell you about this other thing. And so I personally find it hard to talk about my work and promote my work. But you clearly don't have that level of shyness or that level of like, a, a, like that hindrance there. If you want to sell your books, you learn very fast to overcome that. Yeah, I'm still learning. I'm still not got it yet. Right. Well, that's one of the reasons we started this podcast is to try to kind of provide an, an alternate route. Because I, I, as I said, I'm done. I'm 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 going to go. I'm going to do two signings this time, 
and I'll do I'll do signings for the two bookstores that have been the nicest to me and to Stephanie if she really insists. But I think we're going to probably do something like this, where you know you do you do a bit of a talk and maybe get people engaged that way. I have I have success that way, but just sitting at a table, I just like I can't I can't I can't change I can't change eye content into a sale eye contact into a sale I can't make that transformation That's well you have to remember if they're coming up to your table and looking at you they're interested uh, okay the sales yeah. half done once they've looked at you and smiled and you have to smile back too you can't just have a you do have a, a lovely pain. smile Frank yeah, I'll give I, you that I don't Thank I make you. people yeah. uncomfortable he's got those like blue eyes you know <laughs> the blue eyes and the smile <laughs> now if you want to see how it's done you could go to uh, the news center in uh, Easton from uh, 9 to uh or, excuse me, from 11 to 2 this Saturday, because I'll be having a book signing oh, there. There you go. And so so we can... Uh, we can segue right to that. So um, so this Saturday is the 14th? 14th, yes. Yeah, so Saturday the 14th, May 14th, and this this podcast will come out on the 12th, so we'll make sure that's out in time. So do you have any other signings coming up as well? I have one in uh, the Kaysen bookshelf. Well, I have a problem pronouncing the name of that city, and that's on the 28th. Okay. Is Case in the name of the city? Yes. Oh. Okay. Is it yeah. in Delaware? Yeah, it's in northern Delaware. It's, uh, it's uh, near oh, Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Oh, yeah. North, I, I, northwest I, I, of Wilmington. It's, <coughs> excuse me. It's in actually the uh, hilly area of Delaware. They're about five square miles with hills in the northern part. Fantastic. All right. And you have a website. Correct. Uh, www.frankehopkins.com. Okay. And um, so we'll make sure we have a link to, on the on the uh, author podcast page, we'll make sure we have a link where people can go buy your books. We'll make sure your website's up there. Do you have any social media that you do? Um, I used to do a blog, but I found out that that was really very time-consuming. Right. Uh, so I dropped that, and um, I'm on Facebook, and that's sort okay. of taking the place of the blog. All right, so we'll make sure and we have I a link to I make all my book signing announcements on Facebook. Great, so we'll make sure we have a link to the Facebook account. We'll make sure we have a link to the website and links to buy the books. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank I you. And we'll also that. have a link to uh, the reading that you did out of first time. And very, very quickly, as long as we're in the plugging section, since I am on my little tiny book tour as well. Go for it, Tony. Uh, tonight in, uh, in Smyrna, I will be at the Blue Earl Brewery. And then tomorrow night in Dewey Beach, which is the May 13th at 6 p.m., I will be at the Dewey Beer Company. And you can find that at sure, surecraftbeer.com slash events. Awesome. And we'll try to do a live podcast. That'll be fun. Yeah, we're going to it's, it's going to happen. I'm going to do my first one at, at Smyrna and we're going to see how it works. And if I can get through it without too much tragedy. Uh, then we'll then we'll do it live from Saltwater Media probably in July. So stay tuned for those announcements. Nice, fantastic. and keep the letters coming. Did we get a ton of letters this week? Um, no, I don't think we got a letter this week. But uh, if you would like to send us an email, you can hit us up at podcast at saltwatermedia dot com. Leave us some feedback. Good, bad, ugly. We prefer the good. Um, but shoot us a message. We'll read it on air. And we would. And if um, you want to leave us a review on iTunes, we'll take that too. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here, Frank. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Find us at www.saltwatermedia.com and on social media. Want to hear more? Just follow along by subscribing on iTunes and Stitcher to hear more behind-the-story stories. Want other people to hear more? Give us a great review on iTunes. Tell your story.